This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.37, The Devil's Machine. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and I would prefer guava juice. And I'm Nina, new to Zena and mad on Four's behalf. She got short shrift. Justice for Four. Mobile Breakdown is made possible by the support of 288 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Blogomatic, Rory W, Morgan M, David M, and someone who I think wants to be called Teacher33, but it's spelled T3ACHR33, so I am taking some liberties. This is the month for us to get to 300 patrons. I believe in us. I believe in you. If you aren't already a patron, what are you waiting for? We have an incredible backlog of bonus content, including last month's skip watch list for Zeta. How much of Zeta do you actually have to watch to get the minimum acceptable Zeta viewing experience? On top of patrons-only merch and our incredible Discord. Mobile Suit Breakdown is only possible with the support of listeners like you. Help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. Thank you also to Could Get a Degree Before Turn A, who made a one-time contribution through our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash Gundam Podcast. And yes, you probably could get a degree before we get to Turn A. Thanks for rubbing it in. We don't actually mind. Another way to support the podcast is to buy an item from our wish list. After both of us having nasty colds this past month, our stores of tea are very depleted. And as you might imagine, there are lots of reference books, magazines, and other research materials we wish we had access to. The link to the wish list is at the bottom of our homepage, fundampodcast.com. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 36, Forever 4. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers Kilimanjaro, Tanzania, and why these episodes were set there. We also have a brief language note about Camille's name. But first, let's tune in to TNN. This week on The Tea with Lieutenant Nina Nina's Daughter. Everything looks perfect from the outside. But what's really going on inside the famous Adoption Enterprise for Urchins group? Is the handsome, sunglasses-bedecked lieutenant in their advertisements really taking care of all these children? And just what is their connection to noted terrorist organization AUG? Tune in tonight for part one of Lieutenant Nina's investigative report, FA, Family Friendly or Foster Fiend. Children. Where do they come from? No one knows for certain, 
But ever since the One Year War, seven years ago, the number of children without parents has increased dramatically. Scientists call these smaller, defenseless humans orphans. The ratio of orphans to parented children has varied throughout history, but in the modern universal century it's estimated that between 75 and 95% of all children may be orphans. Experts agree that children are a problem, and orphans doubly so. In order to address these desperate and tragic circumstances, the Federation government and the Titans have established publicly funded orphanages around the world, in places like Oakland, Japan, Kilimanjaro, Leipzig, Pyongyang, and Augusta. But due to resource shortages caused by the war to defeat the AU menace, these Titans orphanages have only been able to accept certain qualified orphans, leaving many with no one to care for them. Other programs, like the Titans News Network Summer Camp for at-risk male youth, the award-winning Big Titans Little Titans Mentorship Program, and the annual Take a Teen, Leave a Teen Adoption Drives have only been able to alleviate the problem. Enter private adoption and fostering agencies like the Adoption Enterprise for Urchins Group. This mysterious organization rose to prominence when the following advertisement, featuring the group's spokesperson, went viral on Facebook and MyEarth. Right now, I am simply Lieutenant Quattro Bagina, and I think it would be good for me to get some experience as a father figure. Give me children and I will take them into space." The advertisement then continues for several minutes, during which Lieutenant Bajina silently flexes for the camera, accompanied by the sounds of former Frabo and the Orphans bassist Kika Kitamoto's haunting new single, In the Arms of the New Type. Give orphan children to this handsome hunk and then never need to think about them ever again? It sounds perfect, but is Lieutenant Bajina's promise too good to be true? With the help of our award-winning costume department, I went deep undercover posing as a popular Haro brand robotic toy to see how the Adoption Enterprise for Urchins group operated from the inside. And what I found will shock you. Despite what their advertisements would have you believe, Lieutenant Quattro Bagina takes almost no part in looking after the orphans given into his custody. From the moment I infiltrated this facility, I did not see Lieutenant Bagina interacting with any of the orphans, although I did hear rumors that he takes a special interest in certain orphans once they are tall enough to reach the controls of a mobile suit. Instead, the bulk of childcare work falls on young, poorly trained, and unpaid or underpaid caretakers. Caretakers like Fa Yuri, or Big Sister Fa, as the orphans are forced to call her, regularly use corporal punishment to maintain order, when they are present. Most of the time, children are simply left to look after each other, with nothing but a broken down old haro or a paper airplane to keep them occupied. It's no surprise that child-on-child -child violence is frequent, and frequently ignored. The AEUG wants you to believe that they have no connection to the AUG terrorist organization. But as I infiltrated their facilities, I realized that the orphans taken in by the group were being housed on AUG warships. A spokesperson for the group claims that this is just because they rented rooms from AUG via Space B&B subsidiary WeToil. But it quickly became clear to me that there was little to no separation between AEUG caretakers and AUG soldiers. AUG claims they have a policy that forbids orphan caretakers from ever piloting mobile suits. But during my time there, I saw this policy flagrantly ignored approximately half the time. And if collaborating with terrorists doesn't bother you, maybe child labor will. That's right, I personally witnessed two young children around six years old ordered to help with mobile suit maintenance under very dangerous circumstances. 
and that's to say nothing of the dangerous condition of the poorly maintained facilities. After a fire broke out in the ship's living quarters, several orphans became trapped there and were very nearly killed when a hatch ruptured. These are the day-to-day -day hazards endured by the poor orphans unfortunate enough to end up in the care of AEUG. TNN Premium subscribers can go to myearth.fed slash the T for more gruesome details and 4K video of the horrendous conditions in these AEUG orphanages. Plus, be sure to tune in tomorrow for part two, No Ray of Hope. War hero Amuro Ray made news last month when he announced a new partnership with the AEUG to provide mentoring and on-the-job training for at-risk teenage orphans. But does he have a hidden agenda? And just what is his connection to Lieutenant Bajina? Plus, I examine disturbing rumors that AUG is recruiting orphans for their army of child soldiers. And now a word from our sponsor, Honestly Juice. Honestly Juice. You should be more straightforward and just admit that you want it. And now the recap for Forever 4. The Titan's Kilimanjaro base still stands at the summit of the mountain. On its snow-cloaked slopes, Caraba's forces lay siege and plan their next move. Quattro wants to wait until reinforcements arrive. Leaving the meeting with Quattro, Camille demands to know the reason for his caution. Quattro admits that he's worried that Camille won't be able to fight effectively, knowing that Four is among their enemies. But it's more complicated than that. If they were to kill Four, it would probably make Camille useless as a pilot. Camille still insists he can save Four, defeat the Psycho Gundam, and make her normal again, if Quattro will help. It's impossible, Quattro tells him. She is too far gone now. Sneaking away from camp, Camille uses a single-person Homo Avis glider to sneak through the Kilimanjaro base perimeter. He spies a new model of mobile suit still under construction, but that is not why he has come here. Inside the base, Camille can feel Four's presence, and she feels his. An expression of delight passes across her face, and the two teenagers run through empty halls toward each other. Meeting, overcome by joy, they embrace. By fate or sheer unfortunate coincidence, Jared is here too. He came to Kilimanjaro to convalesce after the wounds he suffered when Moar died. He spots Camille and Four sneaking through the halls, but rather than raise the alarm, he hobbles after them, determined to deal with Camille himself. And back in Four's room, Camille wonders at the change in her personality in the few hours since the last battle. She's like a completely different person. He asks her about her real name, and the question triggers a memory, perhaps a hypnotic command to destroy Ayuk. But she shakes it off. They embrace, and she is sweet and loving again. I will always love you, she admits but I become a different person when I pilot the Psycho Gundam. They kiss, but the tender moment is interrupted by another of Four's headaches. She's run out of her medicine, so Camille takes her to Namikar Cornell's lab for a fresh supply. When the doctor recognizes him, Camille is forced to disable her assistant and take her captive. Namikar reveals that Four is not merely an enhanced human, but what she calls a real new type, created through science and brain manipulation. Camille tries to force Namikar to return Four's memory, but she tells him it's impossible. Their argument is interrupted by Jared entering the room with drawn pistol, 
but four crashes into him from behind, and the two teens escape onto the mountainside. The sky is lit by explosions. Quattro has at last ordered the attack, and Caraba's mobile suits are blitzing the mountaintop defenses. As the fighting rages around them, Four's headaches grow worse. Camille implores her to keep moving, but her mental state is increasingly unstable. A terrible energy envelops her, and she begins to glow. The other Four has emerged. You. You're my enemy, aren't you? She sneers. Camille begs her to stop, but it's clear that this Four sees him as nothing other than an enemy combatant. She calls the Psycho Gundam to her, and with strength that belies her slender frame, she lifts Camille off the ground with one hand and tosses him aside. Ignoring his pleas, she enters the Devil's Machine. Camille rendezvous with Quattro. Boarding the Zeta Gundam, he joins the fight, hoping that he can still save Four, somehow. Jared, too, joins the fight, in the experimental mobile suit Camille spotted earlier. The fighting concentrates near the peak, where the Titans have a hidden shuttle port. Jamatov Hyman is fleeing, planning to escape back into space, and all the surviving Titans' mobile suits, four among them, have gathered there to defend him. Between the overwhelming firepower of the Psycho Gundam and the power of her new type pressure, she is able to hold off the Karaba forces long enough for Hyman's shuttle to escape. Moments later, the ground is ripped apart by a series of explosions. Karaba saboteurs have succeeded in destroying the Kilimanjaro base from within. Knocked off balance, Four cracks her head against the console of the Psycho Gundam, and her other personality, the one that is in love with Camille, reasserts itself. But in that moment, Jared strikes, aiming his beam saber at Camille in the Zeta Gundam. Four throws herself between them and the beam strikes the Psycho Gundam between its eyes. There is an explosion, both physical and psychic, and when it passes, Camille finds Four lying in the snow near her decapitated mobile suit. He cradles her seemingly untouched body as she opens her eyes, breathes once, and dies. Quattro and Amaro arrive to witness the aftermath and Amaro laments how people end up repeating the same mistakes over and over. As they leave aboard the Audumla, Camille, still holding four, confronts Quattro. I will never call you Lieutenant Quattro again. You're Shar Aznable. Deal with it. I think this is a absolutely top-notch, really great episode. The art is good. The art direction is good. The composition of the scenes is really good. The writing and even the translation is pretty good this time around. I think this is the most fully realized, the most eerie and the most unsettling and also the most dangerous and vulnerable version of the four character that we get in Zeta. It's just fantastic for 95% of its runtime. And if it had ended any other kind of way, except with four dying, it would be a fantastic episode. Okay. I was all ready to argue with you. But yes, I think if this weren't the end of four's story, I would absolutely agree with you. But we'll get into why <laughs> this being the end uh, bothers me so much. Maybe we should get into that right now. All right. Let's talk about the, the meat of this episode right away. 
I feel like this is a really good, again, up until that last scene, escalation of Four's storyline. When we left off with Four, it seemed like she had resolved this internal debate. She had helped Camille, sacrificing herself so that he could get back into space. Now we see that that's not quite what happened. And in fact, this divide between the two parts of Four's personality has not only continued, it's gotten worse. She's now exhibiting two entirely separate personas, one of which remembers Camille, is in love with Camille, and the other one knows him only as a profile about an enemy pilot. I would argue that she actually exhibits three. That we have the cutesy, sweet, you know, saccharine-voiced four of when they are first reunited, and she seems not to understand their situation. Like, oh, do you want a cola or guava juice? He just infiltrated (laughs) an enemy base to see her. Mm -hmm. Like, excuse me, what? (laughs) And he can tell. He sees and recognizes that that's not for either. Mm -hmm. So we have that. We have the, I know exactly who you are. You are Camille Bidon, enemy new type pilot. Like, I must destroy you. He a asset. Yeah. Uh, And somewhere between or behind or under those two things that are the product of the hypnotism and the drugs and the brainwashing and the abuse, somewhere outside of those two is for herself. Ah, so you think there is an essential true for? Yeah, the the young woman who had the conversation in the car with Camille in Hong Kong. I don't know that she's there anymore. I feel like we get flashes of her in this episode, though. Maybe, but... I don't know. I think that's the real tragedy of four. That person isn't there anymore. That person has been divided into her two constituent halves. My big frustration with four's storyline, particularly ending here, is that because it ends here, it feels very much like she exists entirely to fuel Camille's rage and frustration and disillusionment. She does not exist for herself. Yes. Her death here forces Camille to accept what he has been unable to accept, to accept reality, to accept that she can't be saved. But not only does that reduce her to merely an element of his development, it also really shortchanges Camille. Yeah. I particularly love the argument he gets into with Quattro at the very beginning of the episode. There's this huge mutual distrust between the two of them, which we've seen that Camille doesn't trust Quattro. This is the first time Quattro is admitting out loud he doesn't really trust Camille either. Especially not when it comes to dealing with four, dealing with certain young, female, vulnerable enemy pilots. And while I completely understand Camille wanting to save four, I also completely understand Quattro's position. How many people, how many Ayug pilots will four kill before Camille can bring her around, if he can bring her around? Yeah. And he's willing to sacrifice any number of his supposed compatriots to bring her around? Like, that's messed up. Yeah, it is. And this is a much bigger conversation. But when Quattro says to Camille, you think you can change her? <laughs> Which is like, oof. Repeatedly in this episode, Camille talks about saving for in terms of making her normal again, which is really revealing about Camille's attitude towards four. Camille also believes there is some essential four that has been hidden, that has been tucked away. 
and that he can bring that out and he can save her by revealing that like perfect true normal for Interestingly, I think he has gotten just as caught up in the idea of restoring her memory as she was early on. Mm -hmm. Because as we've seen from Camille's behavior in other episodes, the way he's interacted with Fa and with Sarah, Camille's idea of a normal girl is a girl who has not been touched by the war. Mm -hmm. The only four that is untouched by war is the memories that she has from so far back that the war wasn't happening yet. Except that those are gone. And this episode makes it very explicit. They're not hidden. They haven't been tucked away in a Titan's computer somewhere. They're gone. Right. There's no bringing them back. And yet, as they're fleeing, what does Camille say to her? He says, Ayug can help you get your memories back. And she's so far gone, she doesn't even remember that narrative. She's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Get my memories back. Well, because the memories are... a. Leash. They're a way for the Titans to control the version of Four who is useful to them. And Camille sort of intuitively knows that, and he tries to use the memories as a carrot, as a leash, to bring Four along with him. Come with me, come to Ayug, we'll get your memories back. He's not doing it from any kind of mean-spirited or manipulative motive, but that is what he's trying to do with her. And the sort of bubbly, sweet persona doesn't care about the memories, doesn't even remember that they are missing. Yeah, Something that perhaps speaks to what you were saying and I think also ties into a lot of what we've talked about with trauma. I'd be very interested to hear Shar's take on this. At one point, Four describes herself in the Psycho Gundam. And Camille, because he loves Four, likes to think that somehow the Psycho Gundam makes her do bad things, right? That Mm -hmm. it's the machine's fault. And if she just didn't get in the machine, then everything would be fine. Mm -hmm. I imagine you can tell from my tone what I think of that. Yeah. But the way she describes it reminds me a lot of things that I have heard young people with anger issues say. She says, my mind goes blank and a different me takes over. I mean, that's just, that's dissociation. Well, and and side tidbit, I uh, worked with homeless teens for a while early in my career. I heard a lot of them describe what they called blackout, that in certain situations, they were so overwhelmed by anger or fear, and this is usually like preceding a physical fight. They would say like, oh, well, I, I blacked out and then stuff happened that I don't even remember, and now here we are. Well, extreme mental stress, uh, one of the things it does to your brain is it sort of shuts off the parts of your brain that handle uh, temporal continuity. So you don't remember things the way you normally do. They don't have a sequence of events and some things just sort of drop out. You become hyper-focused on certain details and you lose the larger narrative. So you can have that experience when you're going through a traumatic event, losing a lot of those memories, and it is as though you weren't there. Now, I was saying that this short changes Camille. Bear with me for a moment. Imagine an alternative to the Force storyline where instead of dying here, she survives. She goes back with the Titans Um, And Camille goes back to Ayuk Karaba. And then over the next few episodes, Camille has to slowly come to grips with the realization that the four he is imagining doesn't exist, cannot be saved, and that so long as she is alive and on the enemy's side, she's a threat to him and everyone on his side, everyone he cares about. Then he has to consciously make the decision that four needs to be stopped. Imagine also... Remember back when Moar died? 
We compared it to the death of Lala in First Gundam, and one of the things we pointed out is that part of what made it so much less impactful is that Camille has no relationship with Moar. So it doesn't mean anything for him to kill her. It mm-hmm. means a lot to Jared, but it means nothing to Camille. And that triangle, that three-way relationship that was so important to First Gundam is missing. Now in this hypothetical version of Four's storyline, she goes back to the Titans. She works with Jared. Mm-hmm. She and Jared develop a relationship. It doesn't need to be romantic, but it could be. It could be a mentor relationship. It could just be like compatriots. Depending on how absolutely brutal to Camille you want to be about this, maybe that like bubbly, fun, flirty Four personality is just bubbly, fun, and flirty with whoever. That it doesn't have anything to do with Camille. That's just the personality that that version of four happens to express. You could do it a bunch of different ways. And I think they'd all be better than the way it was actually done. Then you get another confrontation. Camille, Jared, four. Maybe it plays out exactly the same way. Four suffers some head trauma. It forces her into another personality shift. She goes to defend Camille. Jared kills her. But at that point, it has so much more weight. And this really good character has been allowed to breathe and fill the story. like And I, develop a little more. Yeah. I would have loved to see Four be more of a character. I'm a little shocked that she's died this early, given how significant she seems in a lot of the fan art, and people seem really into her as a character. I feel like she got short shrift here. Did you like her? I did. I thought she was interesting. Yeah. I care about Four. This is a character who we both connected with. We both felt something for. And she appears in six episodes total with a like 10 episode gap in there. Yeah. uh, You brought up her manner of death as well. I don't necessarily think stories have to introduce like complexity and suffering for its own sake. But it's a much more interesting story if it's Amuro who has to kill four Mm -hmm. than if it's Jared who kills four. Really, the only thing this serves to do is right now, Camille and Jared's rivalry has felt very one-sided for some time. Jared is obsessed with destroying Camille and Camille's like, oh, it's that Jared guy. (laughs) And this sort of makes things more meaningful on Camille's side. Yeah, I do like the symmetry of the two of them killing each other's most significant people. I think that's a really good element to expand their rivalry, but their rivalry has been such a small part of Zeta Gundam. Like, it's big in that first 10-episode arc or so, but Jared fades into the background. He's only in, like, one out of every three episodes. Again, he has also been missing for some time now. And it feels a bit as if it undercuts this earlier introduced idea of Camille's naivete, Camille's irresponsibility and and selfishness, frankly, in the Mm -hmm. way that he's handling this thing. You know, he takes a glider and infiltrates this impossible to get into base, even though there are searchlights everywhere. I don't know how he manages that. But why could that not have been a more significant attack by Ayub? Why couldn't, you know, 20 soldiers have flown in on gliders and tried to capture Hymem. But no, this is not about trying to capture the Titan space. This is about Camille wanting to see his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he is selfish. And this ending doesn't force him to reckon with that. No, not at all. Like I said earlier, I feel for him. He's in a horrible situation. I do not envy the position that he's in. But he is in love with an enemy combatant. 
Every time he tries to help her get away, she refuses. Also, for story's sake, she should have had to refuse three times. <laughs> this time it's only been twice. The other thing about it is, you know I love Camille. He is a good boy. I feel for him deeply. Like many teenagers, he is in love with this constructed notion of four. He is not in love with actual four. He is in love with a tiny fraction of a facet of her personality that he encountered on a rooftop one time. At this point, four has been made into a tool for different people, for different interests, for the Titans, and also for Camille. That's incredibly tragic, but Camille is never forced to accept it, never forced to realize it or, or reckon with it. Instead, he gets this like perfect girlfriend to death. Right. She can live on forever in his mind, completely unchanged from his imagined version of her. Like the single falling blossom, which is the image we get of her when she dies. Right. They have that brief new type space moment where she says, this way I can see you any time. Mm -hmm. I can live on inside of you. And so... The earlier description of her as able to possess him seems not to be far <laughs> off. Yeah. It harkens back to the title of the episode, which gets translated as Forever For, which I think is a good translation. I think it's a fantastic title, and I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but in the Japanese word can also mean immortal or eternal. So I think that title refers both to this ending scene and the notion that Four will always be with Camille because she's inside of him now. So many ghosts. <laughs> or some aspect of her has left an impression on him that will never go away. We can debate the sort of continuity of consciousness. Is Four's consciousness a ghost that actually lingers on in Camille's heart? Or is it that there's a Four-shaped impression in Camille now? Mm. But whichever of those it is, and it, we can never really know for certain, the title also refers to what Camille finds out when he hacks into the Titan's computer while he's got Dr. Cornell hostage. There is no other four. She has no other name. She has no memories. There is no restoring her. She is and will always be for Murasame. I got very strong sort of Orpheus and Eurydice vibes from Camille leading for down this uh leading four out of the base through this like dark, rocky, lifeless wasteland. It's like he's leading her out of the underworld. But she turns back. Yeah. There's a foundational Japanese myth which is very similar to the Orpheus Eurydice myth, where two of the founding gods of the universe, Izanami and Izanagi, who are brother and sister, also husband and wife, and the parents of most of the Shinto gods, uh, Izanami dies in childbirth. She goes to the underworld. Izanagi is distraught. He pursues her. He goes down after her. And he, like Orpheus, goes through various trials. And then he's able to win the right to bring Izanami back up to the surface world, back to the world of the living. And so they, they do, but as they're doing so, at one point they come into the light very near the portal between the world of the living and the dead, which is, I believe, in the side of a mountain. And he sees that Izanami is, she's dead. She is a rotting corpse. And Izanagi is horrified when he realizes what she has become and he flees. She pursues him. She tries to capture him, but he's able to escape. And then he rolls a boulder over the portal between the living and the dead to keep her trapped in the mountain. 
And when you see four in this episode and the the battle aura comes over her, the psychic power starts radiating off of her and her eyes glow blue and she becomes the demon, it's hard not to see parallels to that myth. And here again, Camille tells her, don't get in the Psycho Gundam, it's the devil's machine. But she is the devil, she is the demon. Which is not to say that circumstances and what's been done to her haven't made her that way, but that is the state of things in this episode. One part I did not entirely understand. At the very end, He's carrying Four's body, and he gets back onto the bridge of the Audumla, and he says to Quattro, you have no choice but to return to being Shar Aznable. <laughs> I don't entirely understand why he says this or what he means. So this puzzled me, too. I spent a lot of time thinking about it and actually doing some research, reading some interviews with Tomino and thinking about it in the context of Zeta Gundam as a whole. And I think I have an answer. Go on. (laughs) Shortly after Zeta Gundam aired, in an interview with one of the anime magazines, Tomino described one of the major themes of the show as being learning to accept reality. Mm. If you look back at that famous letter that Kai wrote to Hayato, the famous bit is Lieutenant Quattro, he is a char. But right after that, Kai wrote, I do not like his attitude of escaping from reality. Four's death has forced Camille to accept certain realities, that there are certain people he cannot save. At the end, when he's talking to Quattro, he is saying, you must also accept reality. You are not Lieutenant Quattro Bajina. You are Shar Aznable. You have to accept that, and you have to live with that. Did you notice when they were fleeing that it's an explosion landing near Four that seems to flip the switch and turn her demonic as you put it indeed i did it's also an explosion behind her and the subsequent head trauma of her head smacking into the console that seems to return her to normal just in time to save camille from jared i mean normal but yes as close to my conception of her like true personality as Mm -hmm. she's been all episode it's therapeutic head trauma did you notice her superhuman strength when she lifts Camille by the neck with one arm. Yes. So she's a cyber new type, but she's also an enhanced human. I think that's the most logical explanation for that. Or Camille has bird bones. She effectively does a psychic attack on Quattro. Yes. I think for the first time in the show. I don't think we've ever seen anyone do that. Amaro kind of did that to Lala early on in one of their fights in first Gundam. When she was using the bits, he kind of like mm, lashed out, lashed out at her. Yeah, I did remember something like it, but it's the first time we've seen it in Zeta. And it's the first time someone has like consciously, knowingly like beaten someone away with the force of their psychic power. It's very rare and a sign of just how strong she is. And also a sign of how she has been made into a weapon. Like this mental thing that for most people is just a... Uh, a generalized aura or a way of perceiving and understanding other people and other things for her is a cudgel. Has been weaponized. And of course, we have the fact that Jared stabs the Psycho Gundam in its third eye Mm -hmm. when he kills her. Obviously, this is very showy. 
and also means that despite the destruction of the mobile suit, they still have a intact and seemingly unharmed body for four <laughs> for Camille to mourn. Although that's a little weird because in the Psycho Gundam, the cockpit is in the head. So that blow landed very near to four. But as you pointed out, her body is seemingly fine. Something else killed her. And I suspect it was like psychic backlash from the Psycho Gundam, from that brain-computer interface that we know it has, overwhelming her mind. I do think the positioning of that attack at that point, sort of on her forehead, between her, on the mobile suit's forehead, <laughs> quote-unquote, between the eyes, conveys to us that this is more than just a physical attack. It is yes. also an attack on her psychically. Absolutely. Another connection to First Gundam, when that aura overtakes four when she starts pouring energy out into the sky. The closest thing Gundam has done to that before was right before Dozel died, when we saw that demon coming out of him. When he stands on the outside of the Big Zam. Screaming, you will not defeat me, I will not be defeated, and firing his rifle at the Gundam. <sighs> what a scene. <laughs> Do you think Namikar is dead? I don't know. Quite possibly, the whole base seemed to blow up. But I'm glad you bring up Namikar, and earlier you brought up enhanced humans and cyber new types, because she says something in this episode that I think is very important for us to keep back of mind going forward in this series and potentially in other series, in any series where there is sort of like a cyber new type development program or anything of that nature. Because what she says to Camille is we must find ways to strengthen humans if we're going to compete with new types. Mm. So she does not believe new types are human anymore. She contradicts herself a little bit because when he makes accusations about cyber new types, she's like, no, we're trying to create new types. We're not trying to create some new thing. We're trying to induce new typism <laughs> in humans. I think this might be an issue with translation because I think Camille might have said, you're trying to make enhanced humans, Kyoka Ningen. And Cornell said, no, we're trying to make technologically induced new types. Mm. And so for at least some portion of the Federation, the Titans, this is about a fear of replacement and the survival of the species and a sense that humanity itself is at stake. Also, that some of their treatment of space noids is probably driven by this conflation of new typism with space noids and the idea that they don't consider new types human. I wonder if that will ever come up again. <laughs> Gee, I wonder. <laughs> I laughed out loud at the realization that Jared is always the one to spot Camille. And because he's Jared, he never raises the alarm. This is very personal for Jared. But seriously, Jared can't go anywhere without running into this Camille kid. <laughs> I'm surprised they don't play it for laughs because this would be really funny. Like, give us an episode where Jared is just trying to go about his day. He goes out to get a burger and Camille is at McDaniel's. He goes to relax in the park, and Camille is there having ice cream with Sarah. Pretty much. Jared's obsession with Camille, his completely irrational desire, not just to kill Camille, not just to beat Camille, but to, like, dominate Camille and have Camille, like, accept Jared's superiority, 
is so pathological at this point. He has multiple opportunities to kill Camille in this episode. He could easily have shot Camille a bunch of times, but he has to gloat. He has to savor it. And there's something almost funny about Jared's determination, right? He's hobbling around on a crutch because he's wounded, chasing after Camille, getting thrown off of mountains. Yeah, and because he didn't shoot Camille when he had the opportunity, and then after he gets disarmed, he swings his crutch at Camille. He throws a boot dagger at Camille. Oh my God, the boot dagger. Does Jared wake up in the morning? And put his dagger in his boot thinking, you know, I might run into Camille today. (laughs) Probably. (sighs) Although, to be fair, they also gave Camille some almost humorously flashy (laughs) fighting in this episode. He does the two, like, head-high kicks. He kicks that one scientist, guard, whoever that was in the face, uh, and then kicks the gun out of Jared's hand. Um... We are reminded, of course, that Camille did do space karate. But these are silly moves. They work. It's not silly if it works. (laughs) The throw, I at least understand. But I was so not prepared for not just throwing Jared, but throwing him off a mountain. (laughs) And four is like, did did you have to do that? Camille's like, he would have killed us, obviously. It's a good throw, though. I think that was Ippon Seonage. It looked like an Ippon Seonage. Solid judo techniques, Camille. Good job. In this episode, Jared gets a new mobile suit. Literally new. It's not finished testing yet. This is, although it's not named, the Bayerland, one of my very favorite mobile suits. <gasps> sloth hands. Sloth hands. Did you like it? What you saw of it? It didn't make a big impression in the episode, unfortunately. Mm. The reason I know of it and call it sloth hands is because Tom has a gumpla of it. And I saw him building it, and I really like its little, like, three-fingered hand thing. (laughs) It's really cool. Yeah. And this now gives us the opportunity to look at Jared's arc as a character through his mobile suits. He's had five mobile suits at this point. He starts out with the Gundam Mark II, then the Hyzak, the Marasai, the Gabflay, and now the Byerlant. If you look at these mobile suits in progression, you will notice a distinct and consistent trend away from the human form, the human-like form, and towards an inhuman one. The Gabflay transforms, but in its humanoid form, it at least looks more or less humanoid. The Byerlant, it doesn't have the right number of fingers, it has the wrong proportions, its arms are wide set, it has thrusters where its armpits should be, its legs don't bend quite the right way to look human. For Jared, his progression, as shown in his mobile suits, has been one of embracing and becoming a monster. I have a few random notes about visuals in the episode that I enjoyed. We get some new costumes. Camille has a new coat. Uh, Four's outfit is now red and black instead of purple and black. And her um, sort of shapeless dress has been made into a tunic. It's a much better looking outfit, I think. It is, although I also think the red and black speaks to that sort of brainwashing, that version of her that is more aggressive, more a soldier and a weapon. We have the ferocious snowstorm while Camille and Quattro are arguing, Hmm. which is a thing we haven't seen Zeta do very much, but that 
quite a few shows and films do is use the weather to convey emotional information. When Camille first infiltrates the Titan's base, I'm not sure if it's mist or if it's actually the snowstorm, but the screen is kind of obscured. And then it cuts from that scene into Four's bath scene where the mm. air is full of steam, which gives it a nice little visual connection there. Yeah. I really like after Four has sensed Camille when she's running towards him and they're both running through the halls towards each other. Camille, we see literally running through the halls. Four is running through a darkened corridor, which since we then see her run into Camille a moment later, we know isn't literally happening, but it's a nice representation of how narrowly focused her mind has become. And then the final thing that stood out to me, a lot of our research this week is about Kilimanjaro, which is actually a group of three volcanoes clustered together. And the massive explosions and smoke at the peak of the mountain at the end is very evocative of a volcanic eruption. Mm. These are all dormant volcanoes, but the explosions, the smoke at the peak as Ayug leaves is very evocative of a volcano come to life. Impending doom. And now our research. Nina has a quick language note. And then we both researched the mountain Kilimanjaro, although we approached it from different directions. Our language note today is about Camille's last name, Bidan. When we first discussed Camille's name, we focused entirely on his first name and really didn't think about his last name at all. But received an email this week from listener Jenny that points out his last name is a Japanese word. Bidan is the word for a moving or impressive tale, often used to describe stories about virtue. A quick look in the dictionary also reveals that bidan means beautiful man. And one of the joys of Japanese language is the layers of meaning available when there are so many homonyms. <laughs> so thank you, Jenny, for the tip. And we hope you all enjoy remembering that this is a impressive, moving tale about a virtuous, beautiful young man named Camille. While Nina investigated the mythology surrounding the mountain of Kilimanjaro, I researched the history, and in particular, the political history of the region. The three volcanic peaks of Kilimanjaro rise nearly 6,000 meters, approximately 3,500 Mongolian alds, above sea level, in the far northeastern part of Tanzania. A quick note on that, depending on your accent, you might say it Tanzania or Tanzania. During my research for this, I heard both about equally. The national park that contains the mountain goes right up to nearby Kenya, and Uhuru Peak, the highest point on Mount Kilimanjaro, is a mere 19 kilometers from the border. Besides being the highest mountain in Africa, Kilimanjaro is also the highest freestanding mountain in the world. Kilimanjaro's appearance in this episode is reminiscent of nothing so much as the two prior appearances of the Federation's Jaburo base, underneath the Amazon River Basin. 
From the ways in which Camille and Quattro's descent parallels their attack on Jabro in episode 12, to the shots of animals fleeing as the ground around them is torn apart by explosions, we are meant to draw connections between the two operations. And Kilimanjaro and the Amazon rainforest are both singular natural features, epitomes of the planet Earth as inhuman and yet imperiled by human action. These are monuments to the beauty of the natural world. They're vast, awe-inspiring, but also fragile. The ancient, enormous bulk of Kilimanjaro, a structure on the scale beyond human comprehension, is at once also very much at our mercy. We could blow it up if we wanted to, and whether we want it or not, the glaciers on Kilimanjaro are melting, and rapidly. Between 1912 and 2011, 85% of the glaciers near Kilimanjaro's summit vanished. There will likely be no ice left on the mountain at all by 2060. Before the Jaburo raid, Quattro warned that an attack on Earth might damage the planet that they were all ostensibly trying to protect. Hayato's Karaba, likewise, fights to prevent the litterbug titans from abusing the Earth, but in practice it is Karaba that we see blasting the mountainside apart as giraffes flee in terror. Indeed, both factions in this Federation Civil War have some grounds to claim that they are Earth's protectors, in principle, if not in practice. But there are other good reasons for Zeta Gundam to turn its lens toward Tanzania, besides the looming prominence of the mountaintop. Loyal listeners may recall other times when I've pointed out that most of the identifiable real-world places where First Gundam and Zeta Gundam have touched down have been places where a colonized, oppressed people fought against exploitation by a distant foreign power. Amazonia, Cape Verde, Quebec, Belfast, New Guinea, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, the Canary Islands that were mentioned in the previous episode, and yes, even Tanzania. Tanzania itself is a post-colonial state created by the 1964 merger of two newly independent territories, mainland Tanganyika, and the islands of the Zanzibar archipelago. Its name is also a merger, taking the Tan from Tanganyika and the Zan from Zanzibar. Zanzibar, of course, has cropped up before as the name of a Zeon warship in First Gundam. The two constituent parts of Tanzania actually have quite different histories, and I'm mostly going to be talking about Tanganyika today. Tanganyika came under European domination during what is called the Scramble for Africa, a period of approximately 45 years from 1870 until the start of the First World War, during which some 80% of the African continent was seized by the European imperial powers. You might remember from our research on the Titans' New Guinea base that this scramble for Africa coincided with the brief period of German imperial expansion that resulted in the creation of, among other things, Kaiser Wilhelm Land in the northeast quadrant of New Guinea, as well as the nearby Bismarck Archipelago, New Pomerania, and New Mecklenburg. Well, the Germans were one of the main participants in the scramble for Africa, and in 1884 and 1885, they established four colonial states out of seized territory in Africa. German Cameroon, German Togoland, German Southwest Africa, and German East Africa. 
The name Kilimanjaro itself is an artifact of European exploration and domination from around this era. It's another one of those situations where European adventurers visiting the region in the middle 1800s went home and they told their friends and the geographic community that the local people called the mountain Kilimanjaro. And everyone at home just said, yeah, that sounds legit. But in fact, I am here today to tell you that it was not legit. And now, no one is sure how the name Kilimanjaro was actually created. My personal favorite theory is that this is a classic case of misheard and misunderstood, because Kilimanjaro sounds pretty close to what you might say if you were a local guide speaking the Chaga dialect of Bantu and trying to explain to your over-eager German client that they cannot, in fact, go and climb the giant unclimbable mountain. When the First World War broke out, the vastly more numerous British colonial forces in Africa moved swiftly to evict the Germans. The year was 1914. German Africa was occupied by the British. Well, not entirely. One small territory of indomitable guerrillas still held out against the invaders. And life was not easy for the British soldiers who garrisoned German East Africa. Despite facing a force of at least 45,000 with an army of around 14,000, the German lieutenant colonel, Paul von Leto Vorbeck, managed to fight a harrying campaign that lasted throughout the war. Undefeated in the field, he surrendered to the British two weeks after the armistice that ended the First World War. I hope we have the opportunity to talk more about Leto Vorbeck in the future, because he's a fascinating figure, and controversial. But what the British could not take in the war was nonetheless given to them in the peace, and German East Africa became Tanganyika, a League of Nations mandate administered by the United Kingdom. League of Nations mandate was a legal status that was granted to colonies that had belonged to the defeated central powers, and it really kind of sums up the League of Nations whole deal, so let's briefly walk through it. Imagine, you are living in a territory that used to be a German colony, but Germany just lost the war and they're losing all of their colonies, so the League of Nations has decided your land won't be a colony anymore. That's great! Even better, all of the surviving European empires have agreed not to annex you. That's even more great. Independence and sovereignty, here you come. But wait a second. They've also all gotten together and decided that you and your people are, and I'm quoting now, not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world. But don't worry. They just think you need some time and education before you can be your own country. And who better to help you along the way than, and I'm quoting again, advanced nations who by reason of their resources, their experience, or their geographical position can best undertake this responsibility. You see, all of those European empires, the ones that agreed not to annex you, they just have so much experience conquering and ruling the globe. And at the same time, they've become so wealthy and powerful. And it's a total mystery how that happened. Don't bother looking into it. Let's just put them in charge of you and your land until they decide that you're ready to be independent. Really, this is all for your own good. And aren't you so glad that you're not being annexed? But for all of that, the British administrators did actually work to develop Tanganyika's economy. And they only ruined it a couple of times in the process. 
And in the wake of the Second World War, they began to gradually allow African citizens of Tanganyika to participate in the political life of the colony. In 1945, they allowed two African representatives to join what was then a nine-member legislative council. In the late 1940s, rising nationalism intersected with labor unrest as dock workers in the capital, Dar es Salaam, and in neighboring Zanzibar went on strike. And in early 1950, the Tanganyika African National Union, or TANU, brought those two burgeoning social movements together. TANU's charismatic young leader, Julius Nerere, argued that the working people's grievances, land alienation, forced labor, taxation, foreign authorities, low wages, and bad living and working conditions in general, were all symptoms of living under colonialism, and nothing could be done about them until the country could be governed by its own people. Nyerere argued for and led a nonviolent campaign, one that saw people from all walks of life pleading eloquently for independence, even in front of the United Nations in New York. When, in 1959, the British bowed to international and local pressure and for the first time held elections for seats on the Legislative Council, Tanu and its allies swept the elections. I should note, the council was constructed along explicitly racial lines, with certain numbers of seats apportioned for African, white, and Asian representatives. But in this 1959 election, the white and Asian representatives elected to the council were allies of Tanu and favored its independence agenda. In 1960, the British expanded the Legislative Council to 71 seats and they held general elections. Tanu won all 71 seats, and its leader, Nerere, formed a new government, with himself as chief minister. By this point, it was clear that Britain had nothing to gain from trying to hold on to Tanganyika, and in 1961, the country became independent and self-governing for the first time since 1885. Nerere himself became president of the new country, and after narrowly surviving a mutiny by the army in 1964 that was only put down with the aid of British and Nigerian allied troops, he oversaw the merger with Zanzibar that formed Tanzania. From that point on, Nerere would remain the president of Tanzania for the next two decades. Through his own overwhelming popularity as father of the country and the political dominance of Tanu, he established a one-party state that became one of the most stable in Africa. He became a major figure in African politics, a force for stability and African unity, a major opponent of apartheid, and dedicated to keeping his country out of the increasingly destructive Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. In the late 1960s, Nyerere's politics drifted leftward, and he dedicated himself and his government to establishing a democratic socialist state in Tanzania. In a sense, and for him, this was the natural evolution of his campaign for independence. He wanted to develop a network of self-reliant cooperative communities within a self-reliant nation. Initially, his government nationalized banks, insurance companies, and industrial firms. And as his program expanded, he nationalized commercial buildings and rental properties in order to end real estate profiteering and rent extraction. He nationalized religious schools, mostly Catholic, and made them non-denominational. You can imagine how many enemies this made him. 
His government also tried to control the development of Tanzanian culture. His focus on self-sufficient rural villages coalesced into an active antipathy for urban centers and the culture that was developing there. Art, in his view, was a force for social good only when it was used to encourage people to do their duty for the sake of the nation. But art for enjoyment? That was dangerous, indulgent, bourgeois. He actively campaigned through legislation, through propaganda, and through roving bands of armed thugs against, quote, decadent culture, like soul music, beauty contests, pornography, and traditional Maasai dress. But this was not just about urban versus rural. It was also a reaction against women's liberation, against the increasing role of women in public and economic life, and the perceived feminization of the urban world. The various cultural campaigns in Nyerere's Tanzania always seemed to revolve around the regulation of women's clothing, women's bodies, and women's lives, around the miniskirt, the office lady, and the female college student. Nyerere and Tanzania would have been in the news in 1985 when Zeta Gundam was being made. In 1985, Nyerere voluntarily stepped down from the presidency, and unlike many such leaders who leave and come back again when they decide that their successor has made too much of a mess of things, Nyerere stayed gone, even as the presidents who followed him dismantled the socialist system that he had built. Nyerere resists easy categorization. His story cannot be reduced to his crusade for independence. His life did not end when British domination did. He fought coup attempts. He fought wars. He hated the International Monetary Fund, but he accepted their bailout when his country was desperate. His ideology and his legacy became complicated through the exercise of power. Power, and what you do with it and what you'll do to keep it, always compromises those who possess it. Much of Zeta Gundam is about power, about the struggle to take or to hold it, and how it's used. Power is a mobile suit. Power is a gun. Power expressed as violence is the tool of the Titans' oppression and the justification for their oppression. It's also the ultimate goal of it, to maintain the power of the Earth government over the colonies, to maintain the power of the Titans over the Federation. This is the same kind of power that Ayug needs to fight back. But once they possess it, what will they do with it? If they win, what will they do then? Remember, the first thing that Camille did when he stole the power of the Mark II from the Titans back in Episode 2 was to use it to terrorize his enemies, just as he himself had once been terrorized. And power is authority, to speak and be obeyed. Power is warships that move when you say, and soldiers willing to kill on your order. Haman Karn exercises that authority through a figurehead in Minerva, but it's obvious to everyone who wields the power. Sorogo commands a Titan's ship, surrounds himself with Titan's officers. He clothes himself in their borrowed power. And Quattro? For all his self-serving protestations to the contrary, that lowly lieutenant commands all the power of Ayuk. What is he going to do with it? And what will the doing cost him? It is easy to be innocent when you are powerless like the teenagers living in obscurity on Side 7 before Zeon's attack at the beginning of First Gundam, 
like Fa when she first came onto the Argama, and Camille objected because he hoped that she would remain unsullied by the war. To obtain power and to use it is to become the villain in some version of your story. To become the Jared to some Camille or the Camille to some Jared. Refusing the power that he already possesses allows Quattro to remain unsullied. As Kai's famous letter to Hayato says, Quattro is escaping from reality. But we have seen how Quattro is already leading Ayug, how his preferences and opinions and suggestions acquire the force of command. How much longer can he maintain the farce that he is merely Lieutenant Quattro Bagina, ace mobile suit pilot, and terrible bodyguard? This is the second episode in a row we've spent on and in Mount Kilimanjaro, a dramatic setting for the action and emotional turmoil of this arc in Zeta. And unsurprising for such an imposing and impressive location, there are a lot of myths and legends surrounding it. From ancient times, many Mediterraneans believed Kilimanjaro to be the source of the Nile. The 4th and 3rd century BCE Greek philosopher Diogenes was said to have traveled to East Africa and, journeying inland from the coast, encountered a snow-capped mountain that locals referred to as the Mountains of the Moon, alleging that this mountain was the source of the Nile. Kilimanjaro is the only peak in that region that is always capped with snow. Mind you, none of Diogenes' own writings survive. All we have to go on are things that other philosophers and historians wrote about him. And, as an interesting aside, the actual source of the Nile is still somewhat disputed. Since 1863, the source is generally accepted to be Lake Victoria, but some geographers think its true origin is farther south. There are legends of how the mountain came to be. As Tom mentioned, these are exceptionally tall, freestanding mountains. They're not part of a mountain range, which is rather unusual. The story goes that a skeptic and jerk named Tone dared the god Rua to cause a famine, just so he could see it. His more pious neighbors told him to shut it, before his mockery got the god's notice and brought ruin to them all. But he stubbornly continued to dare Rua to cause a famine. And Rua heard, and brought a famine that killed many people and animals. The people blamed Tone, and were determined to kill him, so he fled, looking for anyone who would take him in and protect him. But no one would, not even his own father. He went to the forest and pleaded with the elephants and the buffalo to take him in, but they wouldn't either. Finally, he came upon a man living alone in the forest who was willing to offer Tone shelter. This man had two cattle that used to be stones, but had been miraculously transformed, and their names were Meru and Tenu. He warned Tone never to open their pen, because on the day he did so, he would die. Tone, still a skeptic in spite of what had just happened to him, let the heifers out one day while their owner was away. Meru and Tenu immediately ran off, and Tone chased after them. He chased Tenu first, but she only kept running. He called out, Tenu, wait! And Tenu called back, All right, I will wait for you, and stood still. But once he got close, Tenu created a great hill, and Tone had to climb the hill to reach her. Again he called out, and again Tenu waited. Again he got close, and Tenu created a great hill that Tone had to climb. Again and again, Tone gave chase, and Tenu created the foothills and then the peaks, until she created Mawenzi and Kibol. 
and on Kibo, Tenu disappeared, and Tone disappeared, scaling the peak after her. Or, in some versions of the story, died of exhaustion. <laughs> but where did the other cow go? The story I found did not say what happened to Meru. It is said that the Mawenzi and Kibo peaks used to be much closer together. A poor man was scouring the mountain looking for cattle and came upon an old woman who took pity on him and pointed him in the direction of a nearby wild herd. Meru's children. He found them, but could not make any of the herd follow him. Going back to the old woman, he asked her for help. Giving him a staff, she told him, Use this to drive the largest bull, and the rest will follow you. He did as she said, and succeeded in driving the bull and leading the herd onwards. But he came upon Mawenzi and Kibo, so close together that he could not pass between them. He asked Kibo to let him through, but the mountain would not move. Once again, the poor man, though not so poor now that he found a whole herd, went to the old woman for help, and she told him that if he would plow her fields, she would give him what he needed to prize the two peaks apart. He happily plowed her fields, and she gave him a bag of powder. Blow this on Kibo, and he and Moenzi will let you through. Again he did as she said, and just as she said, the mountains moved apart. Kibo cracked and split from Mawenzi, and the man was able to drive the herd between them and back to his home, and the mountains never came together again. That guy is a thief and a homewrecker. There is another story. In this one, Kibo and Mawenzi are sisters. Kibo is beautiful, a good cook, a responsible person. Mawenzi is ugly and lazy. On a cold day, the fire in Mawenzi's hearth goes out, and so she goes to her sister Kibo to borrow a few embers to restart the fire. Kibo politely invites her in, and Mawenzi politely declines, before giving in to Kibo's repeated invitations, perhaps just for a little while. Kibo had a pot of food simmering, and she politely offered her sister some. Mawenzi politely declined, before giving in to Kibo's repeated invitations. Perhaps just a little bit. So Mawenzi ate and collected some embers and began the journey home. Halfway home, she realized she was still hungry. And besides, she didn't relish arriving home to an empty wood pile after walking through the cold and the rain. So she returned and took advantage of Kibo's hospitality once more before attempting the trip home a second time. But she remembered all the same things as before, and once again turned around and returned to Kibo's house. She gave the excuse that the borrowed embers had gone out, but the fed-up Kibo beat Mawenzi with her pestle, which is why to this day Mawenzi's peak is jagged and scarred. In some versions of the story, they are brothers, one serious and responsible, the other a drunkard, but it plays out the same. The bad sibling, having brought some suffering and hardship on themselves, takes advantage of the good sibling until that sibling decides they have had enough. The subsequent beating explains the more rugged appearance of the Mawenzi Peak. One Chaga legend tells of a deep crater full of bones and ivory, an elephant graveyard at the summit of the mountain. As the stories go, elephants who know they are dying ascend the mountain and step off a cliff into the crater below, ensuring that their ivory is in a distant and dangerous place far from the poachers who hounded them in life. If you find the crater, you can take a single piece of ivory, 
specifically the first one you find, the greedy will find themselves cursed, suddenly blinded, or trapped in the crater forever. There is some evidence that another group lived on and around Mount Kilimanjaro before the Chaga, called the Wakonyingo. In folklore, they are described a bit like dwarves from Western fairy tales, very small in stature with large heads and living deep in caves beneath the slopes of Keeley Peak. They are said to have magical abilities and to curse anyone who brings negative spirits to the mountain. Though not strong and possessing only primitive tools, the folkloric Wakonyingo are said to be very stealthy and cunning, easily disappearing into the forest or emerging in ambush. Fittingly, I finish with a piece of folklore about death and the afterlife. The Chaga believe that there are two realms for the dead, each with a separate gate, but both gates located, quote, where sky and earth join. Some stories say that the portal to the underworld is marked by a ring of fire, while others say it is simply a cave or a hole in the ground. And in many of these stories, the place where the sky and earth join is the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. With access to the underworld so close to our own, ghosts regularly visit people's dreams and sometimes take them to visit the spirit world. And the events of our world affect the ghosts and spirits. Colonialism's burdens were said to have made even the ghosts thin. We see no earthly settlements on the foothills or slopes of Kilimanjaro in these episodes. Perhaps those who lived there were forced into space colonies, left land poisoned by pollution or rendered infertile by climate change, or simply fled the violence of this or some other war. Who is left to be troubled but the ghosts? Goodbye to four. A young woman, barely out of girlhood, shaped by war and stripped of everything but being a weapon. No past, no life, no freedom. Only the promise of these. The tantalizing assurance that if she can endure enough, these things will be restored to her. How can we not be overcome with sympathy? She is never free. She is neither restored nor able to create a new identity separate from her demons. Her life snatched away by a war she didn't start. We will never know who she might have become. But in a moment of lucidity, she saves the only person who has ever tried to save her. There's a tradition in Japanese poetry of death poems. If you're a poet, it's common and indeed expected that as you're dying or in your moment of death, you will offer the world one last poem. In Four's memory, we selected one of those death poems. Oda Dokan was a warrior retainer serving the Uesugi clan in the Kanto region. Tactician, architect, Buddhist monk, and poet, he is most famous for having designed Edo Castle, today the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. Caught up in clan conflict, he was stabbed while bathing at his lord's home. He uttered his last poem and died. For four, in her moment of death, in her final communion with Camille, she is able to express herself one last time in much the same way. It's like a death poem for her, and it may be the only true expression of four's inner self in this whole episode. <laughs> 
Four may have felt at this time that continuing her life as it was was unbearable, that she was already dead. Had I not known that I was dead already, I would have mourned my loss of life. Kakaru toki, sa koso inochi no oshikarame kanete nakimi to omoi shirazuba. Four may also have felt that, as with the first time she helps Camille escape, the best use of what little freedom was available to her was to protect the person she loved. You came around the other day, but someone else was in my house, some other one. And she told you to go away, but I hoped maybe you would come again. I waited around a little while with her, the other one. I met you by the door, coming back, and wanted to say, I love you, but she was there. And you said, Leave her and come with me. But there is only one house, and we too. Live there. The English translation of Ota Dokan's death poem is by Yoel Hoffman, a professor of Japanese poetry, Buddhism, and philosophy at the University of Haifa in Israel. Hoffman himself is a few years older than Tomino. His family fled Romania in 1938 when he was one year old and settled in what was then the British Mandate of Palestine. He was placed in an orphanage there after his mother died. He was 11 when the modern state of Israel was founded. And the first Arab Israeli war began. He came of age in a time of frequent war and constant tension. As a young man, he traveled to Japan to live and study in a Zen monastery, and he received his doctorate in the philosophy of religion and Buddhism from Kyoto University. In 1986, he compiled and translated into English a collection of Japanese death poems. You can hear the echoes of those chaotic years of the mid 20th century. Inflected in some of his translations, including this one. Echoes that you can also hear in Zeta Gundam and much of Tomino's early work, produced around the same time as those translations. The latter poem is my own composition. Next time on episode 2.38 Human Sacrifice. We cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 37 and A Sad Clown. Exactly one black person in all of Africa. Oh no, a Titan did something nice! Pirate broadcast. Quattro comes out. Hisashiburi! Camille is a good boy! 
the violence inherent in the system, and what Zeon Daekun really meant. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, What Zeta needs is more characters, less screen time, more dramatic deaths. Just an endless parade of new Shalia Bowls getting introduced and vaporized at a rate of one per commercial break on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. The music in the TNN was New York City by Spinning Merkaba. The tribute to Four included Sovereign Quarter and Rains Will Fall, both by Kevin McLeod. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Who are you really on Twitter? I'm me. But are you... I don't know. Which version of you? What would Isabel Animal Crossing say about it? <laughs> you want to talk about Gundam? I mean, yes, but first I want to tweet this tweet. Get twoked. I'm mostly playing it straight. I hope it's still funny. Uh, but sound less happy. He's in love with a loud truck outside our window. <laughs> it's a very specific sort of fan fiction. <laughs> He's had four at this point. From the Hyzak... Five. He's had five. The six mobile suits of Jared Mason. (laughs) Byerland. Byerland? Byerland. Byerland. Anyway, um... Sometimes when I tell people I'm a podcaster, that's their first thing they say. Like, oh, you have a good voice for it. (laughs) That's the bit that I was like, is that cheesy? I don't know. Nope. I knew what you meant. I was ignoring you. <laughs> but the whole point of the thing is that your job is being like a subsistence gatherer. <laughs> that is your job. No other jobs. I, I clearly do not understand the appeal of Animal Crossing. No. I thought you were also like a mayor. Not in this one. In one of them, you were the mayor. You're not the mayor. You just have ultimate power over this island. Yes. Mm. Eventually. They don't they don't give you ultimate power immediately. <laughs> uh, you have to kill a lot of animals to get it. Yeah, you you clearly do not understand <laughs> Animal Crossing. It's going to be really funny when I get it and I spend all day that first day playing and you're like, "Wait, but you're just like running around." I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> you're like, "But I, 
don't understand. Is that bug going to try to kill you? No. How many experience points do you get for capturing that bug? None. I just don't understand Animal Crossing at all. I'm so excited. (laughs) Cannot contain myself.